All right, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, turn to the book of 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles. In just about a month and a half, on the 26th of August, um, one of the biggest fights in boxing history is going to take place in Las Vegas. In one corner is going to be um, perhaps the greatest boxer of all time, Floyd Mayweather, who has fought 49 times and won 49 times, undefeated um, and once retired but coming out of retirement for this fight. Because in the other corner is going to be one of the greatest uh, boxers in, or fighters in the uh, UFC, Conor McGregor. And Conor McGregor has decided that he thinks that he can actually box against Floyd Mayweather, um, not the tactics that you have in UFC where you can hold and grapple and wrestle and punch while they're laying on the mat. He's going to actually box him. And so many people are intrigued by this, and uh, not only by the ability of the fighters, but by the, the complete contrast in style that um, the revenue from ticket sales and pay-per-view is expected to make it the largest grossing fight in boxing history. Now, if you watch sports at all, and I do, um, the build-up to the fight really escalated this past week because they had a number of news conferences. And if you remember back in the days of Wild World of Sports and Howard Cosell, I remember that, when, when boxing would be on Saturday afternoon and you could actually watch every fight. And that's, that's all changed. But back in those days of Ali and Frazier and Foreman, when they'd have uh, these pre-fight news conferences, the fighters would just kind of stare at each other and, and maybe talk a little, you know, smack and, and say a couple words. And, but, but it was pretty pretty mild. It was mostly just staring each other down and kind of getting up each other's face so they're smelling their breath and all that kind of wonderful stuff. That's, that's changed because the times have changed and because culture has gotten much more coarse. So this week when they had the news conferences, uh, Mayweather and McGregor not only got in each other's faces and they not only um, insulted each other, but they said some very derogatory and racist and, and all kinds of things that got, actually got a lot of negative press because they crossed so many lines with, with what they said. Now, in sports, that's known as trash talk. And trash talk takes a lot of different forms. If you look up the term, it's actually defined as insulting words intended to demoralize, intimidate, and humiliate someone. Well, this week, the trash talk got pretty personal and pretty nasty. Now, they know that, and they do that to market the fight. They know that's part of their promotion, and, and of course, they'll drop some words just to get everybody talking about it, like we are this morning, because the more they talk about it, the more people want to watch it, the more money they make, because everything's about money, right? So they said a lot of things that were very controversial and, and talked about it. But, but when I saw that on TV, and then I read this account in Second Chronicles 31 and 32, suddenly studying this passage really appealed to me because I've seen beyond the, the talk this week and beyond kind of the promotional junk that Mayweather and McGregor are doing to some actual spiritual evidence of this this week in, in the lives of some of us. And, and as I thought about that and then I started to study this passage and I was asking the Lord to teach me what to what to talk about this morning, I, I started to realize some of the connection between this. One of the great spiritual attacks against us as believers, and really for, for anybody, 
is the enemy's constant and pervasive effort to demoralize us. He wants us to be demoralized. Now, officially, by Webster's definition and, and spiritually, that word has three different meanings. One of the meanings that I never kind of thought about before is, is to corrupt and undermine one's morals. So, demoralize, to, to make them less moral. The second and third meanings, the second one is to, to deprive a person of courage and discipline. In other words, to destroy their morale. That's the one we kind of think of when we say, I'm demoralized. My morale is shot. I, I feel less than. I, I don't feel as encouraged and strengthened as I was. And then the third meaning is to throw someone into confusion and disorder. So the attempt spiritually is to demoralize us, to make us less moral, to, to lose morale, and then to be thrown into confusion. Now, we already know that the enemy wants to do the first one, right? That's not a secret that the enemy wants us to be less moral. He wants our morals to be corrupted. So we don't really need to talk about that one this morning because we know that's a constant. But I want to focus this morning on the second and third meanings in terms of how we're attacked spiritually. Because sometimes the trash talk against us, sometimes the words against us are so brutal and so personal and so dispiriting that we feel overwhelmed. And we get to the point where we kind of feel on the point of being beaten. And there's a crisis in our resolve. There's a crisis in our faith and it starts to waver and we feel less courageous and less strong and we know all the verses to quote and we and we know we need to pray and we need to trust and all the things that we're told to do as Christians just to hang on but but honestly there are times right where we don't feel very strong to keep going and we just kind of feel weary and beaten down and we know the verse don't be weary and well doing and we say that and we know theoretically that's right but the practicality of it is that we don't feel very strong well when you look at this text in second chronicles we see that kind of attack and that attack is taking place against Hezekiah who was the king of Judah now Hezekiah was standing faithfully for the Lord and as we watch what happens here, we not only are going to learn about the nature of this type of attack, but I want to talk this morning also about how we respond to it. Because what Hezekiah does in response to the spiritual attack is, is like a, a textbook uh, case of how to deal with warfare. So I want to encourage you this morning, take some notes, write some things down, because not one of us in this room is exempt from this. And we're all actually in the middle of it right now because the enemy knows we're speaking about warfare this morning. That's why I prayed at the start. He knows what's going on. He's going to attack and speak lies into our minds and, and do all sorts of things, not only while we're here, but when we leave. So, so we need to understand what's going on and then how to deal with it. So let's read. Thank you for turning. Start at the end of chapter 31 in verse 20, and then we're going to read just for the time being up to verse 8 of chapter 32. Thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good, right, and true before the Lord his God. Every work which he began in the service of the house of God in law and in commandment, seeking his God, he did with all his heart, and he prospered. 
After these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and besieged the fortified cities and thought to break into them for himself. Now when Hezekiah, verse 2, saw that Sennacherib had come and that he intended to make war in Jerusalem, he decided with his officers and his warriors to cut off the supply of water from the springs which were outside the city. And they helped him. So many people assembled and stopped up all the springs in the stream which flowed through the region, saying, why should the kings of Assyria come and find abundant water? And he took courage and rebuilt all the wall that had been broken down and erected towers on it and built another outside wall and strengthened the Melio in the city of David and made weapons and shields in great numbers. He appointed military officers over the people and gathered them to him in the square of the city gate. And spoke encouragingly to them, saying, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be dismayed because the king of Assyria, nor because of all the horde that is with him. For the one who is with us is greater than the one who is with him. With him is only an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people relied on the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Now, as we said... Hezekiah was a spiritually mature and spiritually sensitive man of God. In fact, if you glance back at chapter 29, you see that he started his reign by reopening the temple because the temple had been closed up and he repaired it. And then he instituted significant spiritual reforms. He called the people to consecrate themselves and he restored temple worship and he reinstituted the Passover. This is into chapter 30 and he destroyed idols. Now the reason that he had to do all that is because the king before him, his dad Ahaz, had caused... uh, Israel to go into a downward spiral spiritually. He had uh, built idols and sacrificed his own children to those false gods, and it got so bad that that God used Israel, their brothers, their their neighbors to the north. He used Israel to invade Judah and allowed Israel to take away two hundred thousand women and children. Because he was sending a message to Ahaz, you're going the wrong way. But Ahaz didn't get the message, or at least he didn't want to get the message. And he didn't listen to the Lord's direct warning when God sent a prophet named Oded and said, you're going the wrong way. And in fact, Ahaz made a deal with Assyria, thinking he could enter into a partnership with them. But then Assyria turned right around and attacked them. But Ahaz still didn't get the message. He got more stubborn. And he defied the Lord more. And he got so deluded that he decided that the Aramean gods would help him. So he went into the temple. He stole all the precious items out of the temple. He chopped them up. And then he closed the doors. And on every street corner, he made idols to himself. Because he thought somehow that would be better than serving God. And the text says a couple chapters before that Ahaz intentionally provoked God. How many know that's never a good position to be in? Provoked God. And yet whenever we intentionally sin against God, what are we doing? We're provoking God, right? We're offending God. Well, Ahaz is finally removed. And his son Hezekiah becomes king. And praise the Lord, he doesn't follow his dad's example. Instead, we read in chapter 31 and verse 20, that he did what was good, right, and true. I love that the Holy Spirit there gives us three distinctive, uh, distinctions 
to describe his actions. Now you say, well, why, why is that important? Why do we need the different meanings? Because each word means something different. If he just was good, he was just a good guy, you know how many times, oh, he's a good guy. If he was just a good guy, God would say, and Hezekiah was good, but he doesn't. He says he was good, right, and true. Now listen to what each word means. Good means he did what was morally beneficial. Right means that he was correct and righteous. And true means he was doctrinally and ethically faithful. Now, get those because it shows the thoroughness of obedience. That we need to be intentional about living righteously, being biblically correct, and doing what's only beneficial for our walk. It's not enough to just say, well, I'm a good person. I try really hard and I do it. No, it goes beyond that, especially as a believer. We have to do what is correct. We have to do what is righteous. We have to do what is biblically aligned and only what will be beneficial to the growth of our walk. This is what James is talking about in his letter in the New Testament. He says, if you really want to validate your faith, you want to show that what you believe is authentic, well, then it should be in every single area of your life. That you're righteous, you're biblical, and you're doing what is spiritually beneficial to your life. And then you look back at verse 21, and it says that everything Hezekiah did, in all of his actions, he sought the Lord. And he served him with all his heart. And look at what the Lord did. He blessed them. Of course he did. Because that's what the Lord does. When we serve the Lord, when we're faithful to the Lord, when we seek the Lord, God says, I love it when my children do the right thing. Is there anything better as a parent than all the things you've taught your kids over the years, all the things you've said, all the corrections you've given, all the instruction that's been in their little hearts, and you see them as they grow older and they choose to do the right thing. Is there anything more satisfying as a parent than that? Or you go, see, you got it. All those, all that nagging, it came through. The Lord says, I've taught you. I've given you my counsel here, right here. You have everything you need to know. And I've given you my spirit to teach you and instruct you and indwell you and fill you. Now do what's right. And when we do what's right, God says, yes, that's it. I'm going to bless you. When your kids do the right thing, we don't punish them, right? I can't believe you did the right thing. You're grounded. Wait, that doesn't work. We bless them and we encourage them and we praise them. That's what our Heavenly Father does. Yes, well done, good and faithful. Yes, that's what I'm looking for. Yes, that's what I've commanded you. Yes, that's what I want you to do. Well, that's what Hezekiah did. Look back at verse 21. God is gracious to him and blesses him. Now here's a truth because between the end of chapter 31 and the start of chapter 32, the break is necessary because now there's a transition. And this is a truth that we need to recognize and not get discouraged by. Because when we live the way Hezekiah does in the last two verses of chapter 31, when we live that way, we are open to increased spiritual warfare. And Hezekiah faces an attack by an arrogant enemy 
that is both physical and psychological. In fact, notice as we go through this in a couple minutes, notice we go through the, the, the characteristics of the attack. Uh, I want you to really pay attention to the pride and the self-assurance of the enemies of the Lord. And that's indicative of how the devil works. The devil acts with pride and self-assurance. He's still in his mind. He can read Revelation. He knows what's going to happen, but he still thinks he's going to win. He still thinks that's how deluded he is. So it's not a surprise when the enemies of the gospel, when, when Hezekiah's enemies come through as arrogant and brash and self-assured that they're going to win. But I want you to see, don't get discouraged by that, because what we're going to see at the end is how the Lord responds and defends his people. So really focus here on what Hezekiah does to prepare. This is kind of our first section of study what, what is Hezekiah's preparation? What's his response to the attack? Well, it's in the verses we read, verses 1 to 8. And I want you to see this because it's so important that we be proactive rather than reactive. Jesus promised us, you will face warfare. Jesus promised us, people will stand against you. People will accuse you. People will slander you. People will do all sorts of things to you. Because you're connected with me. So the more connected you are with me, the closer our relationship is, the more the warfare is going to come and attack you. So don't be surprised by it. Don't be taken off guard going, what in the world's going on? Why am I in warfare? This is part of it. And we need to be prepared. We need to be on the offensive, alert, careful, armed with the weapons that God has given us. And knowing that the Spirit will defend us, and we also need to be on the defense, watching, guarding, walking circumspectly, making sure that we're protected on every side. And in all of it, we need to be wise because the enemy's crafty. But, but the wisdom and discernment that we need for the battle only comes from the Lord. It comes from seeking Him and following Him. And if we're not completely prepared, if we're not constantly getting our hearts and our minds ready, it is going to be so easy, so easy to be discouraged and feel defeated by the attack. So look at what Hezekiah does when the threat starts to manifest itself. Notice that he doesn't wait until Sennacherib gets there. He doesn't wait for the enemy to come and then go, all right, now what are we going to do, guys? Because Sennacherib's knocking at the door, and we probably ought to develop some sort of a plan. Instead, he gets ahead of it, so he's able to withstand it. Look at the verses. In verses 3 to 4, he cuts off the water supply so his enemies couldn't sustain themselves. Now, water is the most primary source of life. So the spiritual application here is that we have to cut off and eliminate whatever gives life to sin because sin's our enemy. So as Hezekiah is cutting off the water because he knows they need water to have life. If they don't have water, excuse me, if they don't have water, they can't sustain themselves. They won't be able to stay for any length of time. And all the people get this. They go out and they say, it says there's so many people that cut off the water. It's like they, they've got almost too many people because they understand the principle. And yet, when we're dealing with sin, if we don't cut off the life of sin, if we don't choke out the supply, it's going to keep getting us. It's when we allow sin to breathe 
It's when we allow it to have life that it will continue to advance and continue to do major damage to our spiritual health and our spiritual security. This is why the Bible says, put off sin and put on righteousness. Like, like the shirt I put on this morning, put it on, clothe yourself in righteousness and get rid of the junk. Second, would you see, in verses 5 and 6, that he rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem and he puts up watchtowers and he makes more weapons and more shields. The spiritual applications here are multiple. Where there are places of spiritual vulnerability, and we should be well aware of what those are no matter how old or young you are in the faith, and if it's not clear to you, ask the Holy Spirit. He will make it abundantly clear. We have to be aware of the areas of vulnerability and where we're vulnerable, we need to put up stronger defenses and stronger protections. This is more than just saying when we're in crisis, oh Lord, Lord help me, and then doing nothing to fortify. He has fully equipped us, Ephesians 5, with the weapons, excuse me, Ephesians 6, with the weapons of warfare and we have to go back to spiritual application one. We have to cut off the life of sin. And then we have to make ourselves strong and defensive in the areas where we're vulnerable. If you know you have an inclination, men, to pornography, then don't have a phone that can access the internet. Make sure there are controls on your computer that don't allow you to access those websites. Have some kind of accountability. If you know you're inclined to spend a lot of money and that's becoming a problem spiritually because you're constantly in debt, then, then make provisions to eliminate credit cards. There are practical things that we can do. If you're inclined to, to alcohol and you know that if you hang around certain people, you're going to get drunk, then don't hang around with those people. Why do we keep going in the same patterns and saying, well, why don't I have any spiritual victory? Because we're allowing ourselves to give life to sin. Notice third in verses 7 to 8, that after he cut off the lifeblood of the enemy, and after he fortifies and defends the vulnerability, then he encourages the people around him spiritually. See, sometimes we have to call ourselves out. Listen now, we have to call ourselves out for being unnecessarily discouraged. David does this in Psalm 42. He says, why are you so downcast, David? Why are you feeling so defeated? Hope in the Lord, because he's your help and strength. Why are you so inwardly focused, self? Sometimes you got to talk to yourself, right? People think you're crazy. That's all right, you're not. Hey, Paul, why are you so defeated today? Don't you know Jesus Christ who won ultimate victory? Why do you feel so, so weak and dry? You're holding a Bible in your hand. Why, why do you feel so far from the presence of the Lord? All you got to do is call on his name and he'll answer. Sometimes we got to give ourselves a little spiritual pep talk. Other times, as Hezekiah does, we need to build each other up and fortify them spiritually and emotionally because they're hurting and discouraged and they're about to give up. And look how Hezekiah does this. He tells them, be strong and courageous. Does that sound familiar, Joshua 1? About to go into the promised land, unknown enemies, a fight they can't expect after they've wandered for 40 years. Three times in Joshua 1, he says, be strong 
and courageous. Now, why does Hezekiah say it here? This is my favorite verse in the text. Look at verse 7. Be strong and courageous because the one who's with us is greater than the one who's with him. He's not talking about Sennacherib's army. He's not talking about his advisors. He's speaking strictly spiritually here. He says, the one who's with us, the Lord, is far greater than the one who's with him, the devil. And he says, remember, I love this verse too, verse 8, that the enemy only has an arm of flesh. The enemy only has an arm of flesh, but the Lord is with us to help us and fight our battles. Don't you love that truth? That we're not fighting alone, even though sometimes it feels that way. And it's going to feel that way more and more when we forget this and we start to believe the lie that we're alone and we're fighting the battle ourselves, and there's no help. But how many know that the Lord never fails us and never forsakes us? He never fails us. I will be with you. I will help you. And I want you to see the effect that these words had on the people in verse 8. It said they relied on these words. Finally, Hezekiah's integrity and his confidence that the Lord will provide stokes the people's hearts and minds and it stirs them up and they say, yes, we can trust the Lord. Yes, we can find confidence in the Lord. They aren't, weren't always inclined to do that. Usually they only looked at the circumstances and ran around in circles panicking. But, but this is such an important principle of bold, steadfast faith. Steadfast faith is always centered on our confidence in the power, protection, and provision of the Lord at all times. And the attack of the enemy is going to be to try to undermine that at all times. And that attack takes on a thousand different forms of doubt and accusation. Don't believe a single one. Just be strengthened by remembering all the times in the past that the Lord's provided. Be strengthened by the certainty of the presence of the Holy Spirit right now. And be strengthened by resting in the unbreakable promises of God for the future. God has provided always in the past. God will provide always in the presence. And God provides always in the future. Well, once Hezekiah and the people get stirred up and they're prepared... The spiritual trash talk begins. And I want you to see this in verses 10 to 19. Read with me. Actually, verse 9. After this, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, sent his servants to Jerusalem while he was besieging Lachish with all his forces with him against Hezekiah, king of Judah, and against Judah, all Judah who were at Jerusalem, saying, Thus says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, On what are you trusting that you're remaining in Jerusalem under siege? Is not Hezekiah misleading you to give yourselves over to die by hunger and thirst, saying the Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria? Sounds like Moses and the people in the desert, right? Has not the same Hezekiah 
taken away his high places and his altars and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before one altar and on it you shall burn incense? Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of the lands? Were the gods of the nations of the lands able at all to deliver their hand from my hand? Who was there among all the gods of those nations which my fathers utterly destroyed? Who could deliver his people out of my hand that your God should be able to deliver you out of my hand? Now therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you or mislead you like this. Don't believe him, for no God of any nation or kingdom was able to deliver his people from my hand or from the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you from my hand? His servant spoke further, verse 16, against the Lord God and against his servant Hezekiah. He also wrote letters to insult the Lord God of Israel and to speak against him, saying, As the gods of the nations of the lands have not delivered their people from my hand, so the God of Hezekiah will not deliver his people from my hand. They called this out with a loud voice in the language of Judah to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to frighten and terrify them so that they might take the city. They spoke of the God of Jerusalem as of the gods of the people peoples of the earth, the work of men's hands. Sennacherib's not lacking in confidence, is he? Everything is designed to undermine. Everything is designed to demoralize. And when we see these types of, of accusations and threats and insults and doubts creating words, that they're, they're part of spiritual warfare. We need to recognize them and see them for what they are. And all of them are lies. All of them are trash. Sennacherib goes and he tries to undermine Hezekiah, but even more, he's trying to undermine the Lord. And this is the battle that we're constantly in, increasingly, day after day, where the devil is trying to undermine our confidence in the Lord. So let's familiarize ourselves with the method of attack and remember to see how arrogant it is. I want to go through this just kind of line by line. Start verse 1, where we see that Sennacherib is so cocky that he thinks he's just going to break into the fortified cities for himself. And just to make sure he's really effective, he launches this kind of strategic, psychological, spiritual offensive to try to undermine the Lord and undermine the leader and undermine their faith in, in order to cast doubt on God's character and cast doubt on God's provision so that there will be no courage, no confidence. So by the time he actually shows up on the city, the people basically leave the door open and say, come on in, we have no chance against you. Now look at how he does this. And I want you to write these down or circle them or do something because this is what you and I are going to face all week. In verses 10 and 11, first, he appeals to their physical needs. Oh, that king, Hezekiah, leading you to hunger and thirst. You got no chance. Just like in the desert when the people said, you remember the buffets we had in Egypt? We need to go back. Moses, you're leading us. You purposely led us out here to starve. God sends manna. Well, that's not enough. We need some meat. God sends quail. Well, that's not enough. We need some water. God gives water. Yeah, but we're still unhappy. So he goes after our physical needs, illness, crisis, some kind of problem, your weight, whatever it is. He, he, he attacks us physically. Then second, in verse 12, he attacks their doubts. What well, makes his altar better 
than all the other ones you tore down. Well, make, what, what, what makes you think that Hezekiah's altar is the best? Then in verse 13, he appeals to their fears. Did you see what I did to the other nations? Have you, heard, have you read the news? You watch CNN? Did, did you see what I've, what I've done to all those other nations? I'm coming for you. Then in verse 14, he appeals to their disbelief. By the way, all those nations I destroyed, none of the other gods were able to help those people. Then in verse 15, he appeals to their insecurity. You saw what he did to the nations? None of those gods were able to help them. Your God's even less able. Your, your God's more impotent than those gods, so you, you have no chance. There's, there's a mocking spirit here. Then in verse 17, he appeals to their pride. He actually insults the Lord. He writes letters to insult the Lord, to try to diminish him, and to say, you don't need to believe in that God. You, you just believe in yourself, because that God's not going to help you. Then in verse 19, he appeals to their anxiety. They, they, they set up people who just shout insults and yell things and try to terrify the people on the wall so they'll lay down their arms and open up the gates. And then in verse 19, that was verse 18, I'm sorry, verse 19, he appeals to their skepticism. Your God's just like every other God made by hands. Now look back at that list for a minute. Physical, doubts, fears, disbelief, insecurity, pride, anxiety, and skepticism. In eight verses... He goes after them on every single level, physical, emotional, and spiritual. And that's what we face on every level every week. And the goal is always to demoralize. To make you spiritually intimidated, confused, to lose courage, and to fall back spiritually. And the enemy does this all by trying to create doubt. Is the Lord really who he says he is? Can I really trust his word? I mean, you talk about the promises of God and the provision of God, but I'm really struggling. What if it's all wrong? Should I, should I really keep relying on him or just slowly give up? How am I going to handle this? How, how, how am I going to continue on when I feel so weary and so beaten down and so tempted and so tested and so exposed? I just can't do it. That's the devil's words. Don't you think between verses 9 and 19, Hezekiah had all those words rolling around in his head? And the attack gets very personal, and he feels the weight of leading the people and trying to encourage the people. And they had been away from the Lord for dozens and dozens and dozens of years. It's moments like these, listen now, that are the crucible of our faith. But I want you to look back at the text and see what Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah do. Because verses 20 to 23 are victory. King Hezekiah and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed about this and they cried out to heaven. And the Lord sent an angel who destroyed every mighty warrior, commander, and officer in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned in shame, speaking of Sennacherib, to his own land. And when he entered the temple of his God, some of his own children killed him there with a the sword. 
So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and from the hand of all others, and guided them on every side. And many were bringing gifts to the Lord at Jerusalem and choice presents to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sight of all nations thereafter. Is there any better approach than what they do here? Especially when they are under attack, especially when we are under attack, this is our offense and our defense combined to pray and cry out to heaven. It's so simple and so effective because the Lord says, I have given you direct access to my throne of grace. Not a throne of some mercy. Not a throne of some love, not a throne of some help, complete grace. The word means his kindness and favor that brings us complete joy. So God says, you have access through Christ. I tore open the veil. You can walk right in. You don't need to go through a high priest anymore because Jesus is your high priest. You can go right to my throne of kindness and mercy so that you'll have complete joy. Now I want you to notice that like we are, Hezekiah and Isaiah and the people are under spiritual attack. It's designed to demoralize them. It's designed to dissuade them and undermine their faith. And they respond by calling on the Lord. So, verse 21, the Lord ignores them, right? Hey, you called on me and you sought me for help. Eh. You guys handle it yourselves. Listen, Hezekiah, you're a pretty smart guy. You, you can deal with this. You just, you know, maybe, maybe you're just overreacting. Maybe you just need to get over it and know that this is part of it. it. Does anybody see that in the text? Does anybody think that the Lord would ever, under any circumstance, give us that answer? No, because the Lord never responds to our cries for help and protection by ignoring us. The Lord never reacts to his children when they're under attack, crying out and saying, Lord, secure us. Lord, protect us. Lord, help us. The Lord never turns an eye away and says, I'll get back to you. Instead, I want you to see what God does. We're going to close. The Lord sends an angel to destroy every one, every one of the enemy's warriors, commanders, and officers. This is a complete an unquestionable victory. There is no doubt in anyone's mind who wins. It's always the Lord. In fact, when Sennacherib goes back home with his tail between his legs in total shame and he walks back into the temple of his God because he's going to give him a little speech and say, what's the deal? Why didn't you help me out? I was in Judah. Uh, Judah. I was talking smack. I thought I was going to win. And we got completely annihilated. As he walks into his temple to appeal to his God, his own kids come up and kill him because they don't want to be seen with a loser any more than anybody else does. Hey, kids! Ugh. And he drops dead in the temple of his God. Listen, if this is how the Lord fights the battle for Hezekiah and the Assyrians, how much greater is his plan and victory in our lives 
against the enemy that Jesus Christ has already defeated through the cross and the empty tomb. If, if God can do this and defeat all the enemies that are human, Assyrians, he can do so much more for us. And listen, it doesn't end there. Look at verse 22. We're told that he gave them complete victory and guided them on every side. Oh, I want that. And in verse 23, it says that he blessed them and rewarded their faith and their faithfulness. Isn't the Lord so wonderful that, that he does these things? Listen, you may be here this morning and you may be feeling the heat of the battle and the pressure of spiritual warfare and, and the pain of accusation and threat. So please, please hear what the Spirit of God is teaching us in this passage about the security and the sufficiency and the satisfaction of trusting in the Lord. And I want to encourage you, call on Him for help because He will never let you down. He will be your strength and will be your shield. And if the spiritual warfare is because you're keeping a lifestyle of sin and at best you're wavering back and forth between, between sides and you're, and you're kind of at worst being pulled completely away from the Lord, then I want to encourage you right now, right here between you and the Lord, repent of that and ask him to cleanse you and change your heart. And if you are sincere in that, he will do that work and he will cleanse you and be your strength and power. And that spiritual warfare will change from self-induced to now a warfare that comes because you're standing for Christ. But he's victorious in that. You'll never be victorious over sin on your own. And if you're not in the middle of it, and you know, though, that it's never far away. That doesn't need to discourage us or intimidate us because we've learned this morning to recognize it. And Hezekiah shows us how to offset it. And the Lord promises, when you stand for me and you ask me for help, I will give you victory. So get prepared. Use the resources that I've given you to prepare and to be ready for the battle. Because God will always be victorious.